From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The House of Representatives launched a formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump Tuesday. The state's freshman representative says the issue transcends Democrats versus Republicans. It's not about politics. It's about making sure that the president didn't abuse his authority and in the process of doing that, put our national security at risk. The former executive director of the state GOP disagrees. The bottom line is it's a bunch of talking points for a political use. And until we see some evidence, that's all it'll ever be. Then Colorado College is one of the latest schools to stop requiring standardized tests for admission. We'll hear why more schools are less interested in test scores. Plus, a local musician reimagines a jazz legend's life through cabaret. I have been a rover since I was a child. No one to love or care for me. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The White House has released notes from a phone call President Trump had in July with Ukraine's president. It's not a verbatim transcript, but confirms he did ask Ukraine to look into dealings involving former Vice President Joe Biden's son. The question is, did President Trump do anything wrong in that process? That, along with a whistleblower complaint that was not brought to the attention of Congress, are why an impeachment inquiry is now underway. Colorado's congressional Democrats are united behind that inquiry. At this point, the issue has split the delegation along party lines. In July, the state's three Republican representatives voted against an impeachment resolution. So far, only Doug Lamborn has responded to this inquiry. He says Democrats, quote, continue to pander to their radical base. Let's start the conversation with Colorado's Democratic representative Jason Crow, who earlier this week called for Congress to take action. I should note, we spoke Tuesday afternoon before the call notes were released this morning. Thanks for having me on. Now that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has announced a formal impeachment inquiry, six committees are involved in the impeachment process. How do you see yourself taking part in this inquiry? Well, you know, this this is a, a somber day for the country. I don't think anyone wants to be in this position. Uh, you know, I, I came out with a group of national security Democrats, former members of the military and national security agencies, and said that we had to use all tools available to Congress to get to the, the bottom of these latest allegations, which are very substantial and grave and really go to the heart of national security uh, in the defense of our country. So we're going to be pushing to make sure that there's a, a fair and transparent process and that uh, it, it is a process that allows the American people to see uh, what we're doing and uh, the information that we are able to, to move forward for, for them. And do you have an idea at this point what your specific role might be? You know, I don't. Uh, I, I don't have a, an idea uh, you know, as to what uh, role I might play. I think I'm just going to continue to be a voice in making sure that uh, we're doing this the right way and that we're being transparent, we're being fair with folks, uh, and that we're attending to national security. Because for me, that's what these recent allegations are really about. They go to the heart of uh, you know, abuse of potential uh, presidential authority. Uh, you know, the, the, it's about the misuse of hundreds of millions of dollars of security assistance funds meant to combat Russian aggression in Europe. Uh, and uh, you know, the allegation is that the president coursed, using those funds, coursed a foreign government power to open an investigation on a political opponent. Uh, it, it is shocking. Uh, we have to make sure that we are doing this in the right way and doing it quickly in, in the way that uh, a national security issue deserves. 
As you mentioned, you joined six other freshman Democrats in writing an op-ed published this week in The Washington Post. In it, you call on your colleagues in Congress to consider the use of all congressional authorities available, including the power of inherent contempt and impeachment hearings, to address these new allegations, find the truth, and protect the national security of the United States. Did you reach out to other members of the Colorado delegation before publishing that piece? Well, you know, I've had a, a lot of uh, discussions with my colleagues, both in Colorado and around the country about this issue. You know, the, the group of us uh, did, did this independent. Uh, you know, it was a group of the, the seven of us, uh, all of whom are national security, former national security professionals. In my case, I'm a former Ar- Army Ranger, you know, served three combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, there were former CIA officers in our group, uh, helicopter pilots, uh, you know, State Department officials. You know, what's unique about our group is that we are used to uh, living our lives by oaths. You know, I took the first oath to my uh, country, to our country, when I was a teenager. I've taken many since. Uh, and to us, it's not just words, but it's a way of life. Uh, and it really begins and ends with defending our Constitution and protecting the country. And that's the, the thrust of these recent allegations. You know, it goes to the, the core of national security, and that's why we decided to come together as a group, uh, as a unified voice, and say that it is time to put politics aside and to make sure that we're putting the priority and safety of our country first. And what response have you received in general about this call to action? You know, the response has been very positive. Uh, and uh, I think it's because of the fact that we're approaching this in, you know, a, 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 um, a very neutral way. You know, this is about making sure that we get the facts, uh, that we find out what happened, uh, and we uh, allow the American people to, to understand also what happened and have the facts too. And we can all assess what we need to do to move forward. You know, we're not talking about what the outcome should be. It's really important that there's not a pre-described or predetermined outcome here. We need to follow a process that's transparent so we can get the information we need uh, to secure the country. And speaking of transparency, are you surprised President Trump has agreed to release the transcript of the phone call he had in July with the Ukrainian president? Well, you know, there isn't much that President Trump does at this point that surprises me, unfortunately. You know, my understanding is he's promised to release it, and I think that's an important thing to do. Uh, we, we need to have the whistleblower complaint, though. You know, that is the thing that under U.S. law uh, we should have. You know, U.S. law says that a whistleblower complaint like this that has been determined to be both credible and urgent and related to national security must be turned over or shall be turned over to uh, Congress. Uh, the, the administration has not yet done that. So we need to make sure that uh, in addition to the transcript that we are getting the whistleblower complaint that under law, Congress should have. You've supported opening an impeachment inquiry for quite a while. If the transcript shows the president did nothing improper, does that take away some of the momentum? Well, you know, it's more than just the transcript, right? There, there's a whistleblower complaint. Uh, there are numerous allegations of uh, potential wrongdoing by the president. Uh, so we need to make sure we're looking into all that. The White House also says the idea of an impeachment inquiry is, quote, nothing new. The administration says the Democrats continue to weaponize politics when they should be working on behalf of their constituents. How does the proximity of the presidential election play into the timing of this inquiry? You know, I don't think about politics here and I don't think about what, you know, the White House or the administration says. You know, our focus is is on national security. Uh, it's not about politics. It's about making sure that the president didn't abuse his authority and in the process of doing that, put our national security at risk. Impeachment inquiries take an enormous amount of time and effort. Are you concerned that the energy Congress puts toward the impeachment process could impede other important legislation? 
you know, the House of Representatives has passed over 260 bills in the last nine months, everything from uh, bills to protect the climate, to address gun violence, to reduce the cost of health care, uh, many other really important priorities. Those bills have gone to the Senate uh, way that, where they are uh, sitting and dying. You know, so we continue to work hard to deliver on the issues that are of concern to the American people and to the people of Colorado and my district. You know, at the end of the day, people are trying to raise their families, uh, buy homes, afford health care, build a middle class life. You know, we have continued to focus on that. And, you know, we have focused on that, I should say, and we're going to continue to focus on that. You know, the, the role of Congress is an oversight role and it's a legislative role. Uh, we can and we will do both. When you talk with other fellow Democrats who are not endorsing impeachment, what's the best point they have not to go this direction? You know, I can't speak for other members. This is a very individual decision, and people have to uh, determine on their own terms uh, in, um, you know, listening to their district, talking to their constituents, what's right for them and representing their communities. Uh, and, um, you know, I've, I've made a decision that I think uh, is consistent with the, the, the desires of my district. People want accountability. They want to make sure we're securing the country. They want process uh, to be followed. Uh, and that's what we're going to be focused on. And when you speak about your district, is impeachment an issue that you're hearing from your constituents about? Has it come up in the town halls that you've held or in other ways? You know, what, what the concern is, is one about transparency and accountability and checks and balances. I think the community really understands that something that really makes us unique as a country is that we have, you know, these equal branches and that, uh, uh, you know, the Congress and the executive branch and the judiciary all have a role to play here. And that it's really important, given where we are right now in, in, in America at this point in history, that Congress assert its part uh, of, of that, uh, that assert its role and make sure that we're doing the, the oversight duties that the Constitution envisions. That's what people want. They want accountability and they want to make sure that Congress is uh, conducting that, that transparency or oversight, rather. I want to switch gears just for a moment to talk about the ICE detention facility in Aurora. As you know, the ACLU released a report this month outlining what they say are stories of death, abuse and neglect there. Do you find that account credible? Well, you know, since uh, very early on in my time in Congress here, I have taken my oversight duties of the ICE Detention Center very seriously. And that's the result of a lot of uh, very concerning and disturbing reports we were getting about health conditions and uh, the, the welfare of the detainees there. Uh, and I'm conducting that oversight in much the same way that I would conduct oversight of uh, Buckley Air Force Base or the VA hospital. You know, I'm, a, I'm the uh, federal official for the district, and I have an obligation to make sure that what's being done within uh, the district uh, with taxpayer dollars is being done uh, correctly. So we're going to continue to perform you know, our weekly inspections, uh, ask the tough questions, and make sure that uh, the conditions at, at that facility continue to improve. As you said, there are now weekly inspections of the ICE detention facility in Aurora. Are there other updates you can give on what you're doing to hold the facility accountable? Yeah, you know, after I was turned away from my first visit at that facility in February, which was pretty surprising to me. You can imagine, you know, uh, in the first few months of my time in Congress being turned away from an ICE detention center in my own district and not allowed access to that after multiple requests for almost a month, uh, that I started to ask questions about why that could happen. Uh, and I uh, determined that, uh, you know, there was no law that required members of Congress to have access to those facilities. So I have since then drafted a bill, the uh, Public Oversight of Detention Centers Act, and I'm soliciting support from my colleagues here in, in Washington uh, to say that, you know, government works best when there's transparency and there's accountability. 
and that members of Congress and their staff should have access to these types of facilities uh, to make sure that we can uh, uh, comply with uh, you know the, the values of our communities and make sure that what's being done uh, with taxpayer uh, dollars uh, is the right thing. Opponents of ICE and the Immigration Detention Center recently protested in front of the home of the center's warden. What do you think of that action? Yeah, you know, I released a, a statement saying that I disagreed with it. You know, the, the focus needs to be on accountability of these facilities that make sure that we're asking the tough questions, that we're looking out for the detainees, uh, not protesting in an individual's private home. So I, I did not agree with that approach. Representative Crow, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Representative Jason Crow is a Democrat serving the district that includes the ICE Detention Center in Aurora. We spoke Tuesday afternoon after an official impeachment inquiry was launched into President Trump. Now let's hear from Steve House, the former executive director of the state GOP and a Republican candidate running against Crow. Again, we spoke Tuesday afternoon before the White House released notes about a phone call President Trump had with the president of Ukraine. What is your reaction to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's announcement that she's opening a formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump because his actions were a betrayal of national security and that, quote, no one is above the law? First of all, I think it's sad. I think it's it's sad any time a president is impeached. And I think Jason Crow calling for impeachment on Sunday and then AOC together, I think this is really about an impeachment they wanted. I'm not convinced that Nancy Pelosi wanted it, but it's here. And you know, I think the position they're going to take on it and the situation they're going to face is, is a failing process. And I think we're going to see articles of impeachment that have everything any Democrat on the Hill ever disliked about Donald Trump will be in there. And yet there's been no evidence we've seen of any of it. Now, a statement from the Colorado GOP, of which you're the former executive director, responding to the impeachment inquiry announcement included this line. Democrats like Jason Crow will regret siding with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib over the people of Colorado. Why inject the two congresswomen into this conversation? I have no idea why they did that. I couldn't answer for them. I only know what I'm doing in my own campaign. I do believe that you could make the comparison that, you know, Jason Crow and six of his friends wrote an op-ed for The Washington Post calling for impeachment and AOC herself was on talk shows on Sunday doing the same thing. There's probably a link between those two things, but that's the best I could tell you. Moving back to that announcement that the House has opened an impeachment inquiry, forget who's a Democrat and who is a Republican. If President Trump indeed reached out to Ukraine's president to ask for an investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden, was it proper for him to do so? I think you know, I haven't read any of the the text of the transcript yet. I think it's great that we're all going to get to see that. I think there's two factors. One is, you know, it, you have to understand what a person's intent was. And I don't know that we're going to know what someone's intent was by simply a transcript. I think, you know, the fact of the matter is that Joe Biden and what his activities in Ukraine were a violation of the law, from what I can tell. I mean, I certainly think that there's room for investigation, and the Democrats and Republicans should certainly look at that, especially given the video he produced where he claimed to have, you know, given them six hours to get rid of a prosecutor or the United States would not supply them with a billion dollars they had promised. I mean, that looks pretty damning regarding evidence. I think we have to see the transcript. I don't know what it says yet, and I think we have to understand intent if there's a possible way to do that. I think those two factors will determine what the answer to that question really is. 
Democrats are also upset about the situation surrounding his phone call that there was a whistleblower complaint filed that they haven't been allowed to see. They're claiming that the Trump administration is undermining the separation of powers. Do you see any merit in those concerns? At this point, the one thing you got to remember is, first of all, no one knows who the whistleblower is. We did find out two things since the story broke. One was the Wall Street Journal confirmed that there was no quid pro quo in the call. And the second thing was the whistleblower wasn't actually on the call. So to my knowledge, unless they've seen a transcript of it, and we don't know that either, then you have a situation where all of it's hearsay until we see that. Now, I did see that the House voted unanimously to have that data released to them. I think that's a good thing. I think the American people need to see what's going on and be informed. And and when that happens, we'll all have a better feel for it. But again, I don't think until you know what someone's intent is, including a whistleblower, you know, I felt during the Obama administration, they treated whistleblowers badly. I think if you're a whistleblower and you come forward and you have you know, a legitimate right to be heard, then you ought to be heard. And I think that's what's actually going to happen in this case. On Tuesday, the Senate voted unanimously for the Trump administration to release that whistleblower complaint to the Senate Intelligence Committee. The committee has opened a bipartisan investigation into the complaint, and the whistleblower is apparently in talks to testify. Do you think that the complaint should be released? Depends on whether or not there is intelligence information in there that should be guarded. Anything that comes from intelligence or that wraps around intelligence has to go through a process. Sometimes redaction occurs, sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, the answer is until we know what's in there, until the Senate committee knows what's in there, if they can release it, I don't think there's any reason why they shouldn't show it to the American people. I don't think, I really don't think there's anything in there that's going to be a problem for the American people. But then I don't know either until we see it, if we do. The White House also says the idea of an impeachment inquiry is, quote, nothing new. The Democrats are continuing to weaponize politics. Is this indeed political posturing just over a year away from the 2020 election? I think if you look at everything we've seen from the Mueller report to taking the step of an impeachment, an official impeachment inquiry before seeing the transcript, what you're really seeing is a bunch of Democrat talking points and you know, they're going to use those talking points to try to, to do something political in the 2020 election. I think they were unsuccessful in overturning or redoing the 2016 election. By the way, the people who live in CD6, like myself, I think it's a waste of time and money. I mean, there's so many things we should be doing right now in this district, and Jason Crow should be supporting instead of doing this. But the bottom line is it's a bunch of talking points for a political use. And until we see some evidence, that's all it'll ever be. Ever be. And which party do you believe will ultimately benefit? That's interesting. I, I think if it comes out the way that the Mueller report and the other accusations of the president that have gone on since almost the day he took office do, I think that the Republican Party will benefit because the American people will say, look, we didn't send you guys to Washington, D.C. to go do this and spend all your time here and not pass legislation, not resolve infrastructure, not deal with education, not help resolve the, the high cost of health care. Those things are on the back burner right now because they're hung up in committees run by People like Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and, and you know, Jason Crow's involvement, you know, just recently. All those things are just things that are wasting our time. We have a lot to do in this country, and I think the American people will hold the party accountable for that, and I think that will ultimately be the Democrats. Speaking of Crow, he represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District. 
You've also announced that you're running against him. Crow was a part of an op-ed piece in the Washington Post this week. In the piece, he said, as a military veteran, Trump's alleged actions are in violation of the oath he took to protect the nation, as well as the U.S. Constitution. What's your reaction to that? I would ask him how he knows that. He hasn't read the transcript himself. He's heard hearsay from several people. If the president, you know, and I don't know what's inside the president's mind right now. I don't have to defend the president. He does a great job of that himself. But for me to step forward and say that without having any evidence just seems like a premature process, basically dedicated to the concept that these guys want to get rid of this president no matter what. And they're going to continue to throw things at him, hoping something sticks to him, even though they don't have any evidence of it. Does the impeachment inquiry now become a campaign issue for the 6th Congressional District or other districts for that matter? I think it definitely does. I think, you know, when people in the the 6th Congressional District break it down, what they're going to look at is they're going to say, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Jason Crow, AOC, and the Democratic Party are proving today especially that they love impeachment and hate the president more than they love the country. And I think when they go to the polls in 2020, they're going to let people know that. And I think if Jason Crow doesn't already realize that, they'll let him know that when the polls come around next year. We talked a little about the balance of power between the president and Congress. As someone who wants to join that body, do you have any concerns about the frequency with which President Trump exerts executive privilege and the precedent it might set for any future Democratic administration? I actually think if you look at the facts, and this is my impression, and I probably will follow this up by looking at it, I don't think he's exerted executive privilege any more than President Obama did or other presidents prior to that, President Reagan, President Bush, President Clinton. I I think they all exert executive privilege appropriately, and I don't think this president does it anymore. I think that's just a Democratic talking point again. Is impeachment something you're hearing about from Republican voters who might be contacting the state GOP? Yeah, they're contacting me directly as a candidate as well. I think there's a lot of people that are very upset, and it's not just Republicans that are reaching out. Where do you stand on the idea that Donald Trump is an unconventional president, that he's not bound by what was traditionally regarded as proper decorum in the Oval Office? That's an interesting question, Avery, because I think the people of America elected a guy who had no political experience who had a large public image with a tough demeanor and a a deal-making sort of approach because they wanted something different in their president. I think Trump has delivered that and obviously all the calls that the economy would be bad, that he would get us into a war, all the negative things that were said about him during the campaign. Virtually none of that stuff's come true. So while his style is very different, I think the results speak well. When I go into CD6 and I hear voters talking to me about how they got jobs, they got off Medicaid, they went on to commercial insurance, their children are getting better health care, you know, they're making more money, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think they care as much about his style right now um, as they do the results he's getting. And I think that's what they voted for originally. Steve, thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure, Avery. Anytime. Steve House is the former executive director of the state GOP and a Republican candidate for Colorado's 6th Congressional District. We spoke Tuesday afternoon. We also heard from Democratic Representative Jason Crow. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a look at why some colleges are rethinking the SAT and ACT. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.
By now, I'm sure that we're not breaking the news that CBD is everywhere. It's the new kale, the new superfood, whatever you want to call it. But what is it? And how did something that is made from cannabis, which is still illegal in many states, become part of a never-ending national wellness industry spin cycle? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado College in Colorado Springs recently announced that it would adopt a test-optional admissions policy. That means students aren't required to submit scores on tests like SAT and ACT, but still can if they want. We looked very carefully at 10 years of data and determined that test scores really have limited predictive value. Mark Hatch is Colorado College's vice president for enrollment. He says the school determined that a student's performance in high school is a much better predictor of college success than standardized tests. And he says the tests can distract students from more important things. Students sometimes are immobilized um, by this sense that their test scores will keep them out of a selective school. We know that students are dropping extracurricular activities. They're dropping their participation in service or the soccer team to spend nights and weekends memorizing vocabulary words for the ACT or the SET. And we just don't think that is a good use of a student's time. Hatch also says wealthier kids have all kinds of advantages. They can afford test prep tutors and generally do better on standardized tests. We wanted to send a message to those students who don't come from affluent neighborhoods or high schools or homes that they too can be admitted to Colorado College if they demonstrate they have done exceptionally well in the classroom. More schools across the country are moving away from requiring standardized tests, including the University of Denver. Akil Bello is an admissions test expert. He founded Bell Curves, a test prep company, then later sold it. Bello has studied the benefits and drawbacks of standardized tests. Akil, welcome. Thank you. You've looked at standardized tests from all angles. Today, you have mixed feelings about them, but you've devoted a lot of your career to prepping students for these tests. Was there a point when you started to wonder whether all this testing made sense? Absolutely. I think that somewhere in my eighth or tenth year, as you start to realize the impact that test prep can have on a student's score and therefore the college they have access to and therefore the financial aid that they have access to, you realize that it really doesn't make much sense that the financial investment you're able to make in preparing for the test determines outcomes, especially when the narrative around the test is supposed to be meritocracy. It is clearly not equivalent. It is clearly not meritocracy. You know, it's it's clearly not demonstrating academic ability so much as it's demonstrating access to information and ability to prepare. Meritocracy with this idea that the best students will be able to go to the best schools. You've consulted with colleges... Considering moving to the test optional system, we've heard that Colorado College looked at student data and found the tests weren't predictive of success in college as much as grades in high school. How predictive are standardized tests of college success? So the the data show that if you looked at just high school GPA, you have about a point 
5-3 correlation to freshman year GPA, which essentially means that we can predict with about 53% accuracy what the GPA will be in the first year just looking at the high school GPA. You add a test score to that, you might get up to 58%. For all of the effort, noise, money, biases, everything else created by the test, that's very little value added. And that's a national number. I'm sure when Colorado looks at their data and when Denver looks at their data, they may even find less correlation, meaning there's less reason for them to require the test. In addition to that dubious predictive value, are there other reasons schools are deciding not to require tests like SAT and ACT? I think you don't need much more than that, right? Like there's, there's those two huge factors right there. It doesn't give us the information we need, and it excludes a large number of students. And I think, so why would you need it? And I think we also heard from Colorado College that it gives wealthier kids an advantage. I'm wondering if that's something that you've seen. Absolutely. I mean, that's my entire career in essence, right? That an entire billion-dollar industry exists to help students prepare for these tests. This industry wouldn't exist if it weren't effective. Um, even if you looked at things like College Board recently released a study on the program that they created with Khan Academy, um, which essentially they had the study from that that said six hours, no, I'm sorry, 20 hours of prep amounted to 110 points worth of improvement. Well, if 20 hours of prep gets 110 points worth of improvement, most people aren't doing that. Most people don't know to do that. And that's prep on a free online system. What if you pay an expert instructor to give you prep, then how many points of improvement are you going to get? Well, if that's all you need to do to get that huge point of improvements, obviously it's going to benefit those who have the most time and money to invest in preparing for the test. The recent scandal where wealthy and celebrity parents were paying to help their kids get into college got a lot of attention. What do you think that this says about the way colleges go about deciding who gets admitted? I think it's changing there has been shifts over the past few decades in college admissions, in how it's done, you know, it, with the growing number of students. Well, you know, we went from very few students applying to college to a great many number of students applying to college, especially after World War II. Now that number is going to be decreasing in the next few years. So college admissions and enrollment is going to change as time moves on and as demographic shifts happen. Colleges have to adjust to that. They have to account for it. The use of the SAT took a significant spike in the 40s and 50s as uh, people came back from World War II. Um, what I'm happy about seeing now is that importance is being diminished and other things are playing a more important role. Unfortunately, one of the things that has been playing a role is financial, right? Is, is, is your family able to donate a building? Is your parent likely or is the graduate likely to be an alumni supporter after they finish and have entered their career. So those things have played roles in college admissions for a long time. And the scandal revealed the worst aspect of that, right? It, it revealed a bribery aspect as opposed to sort of the acceptable aspect of donating money um, through other means. So it will cause colleges to rethink how they're interacting with donors and funders and alumni. Something that I do wonder about as some colleges move toward test optional, high schools across the country differ in terms of rigor. So doesn't a kid's high school GPA depend on where they go to high school? And I do wonder if that's a fair measurement. 
I would offer that, is it less fair than the SAT? Right? I think that's the more important question is, sure, high schools differ, but the presumption that SAT and ACT scores are objective measures that are uniform for all people has now been debunked. Right? And I think that's what's happening with the test optional movement is a growing understanding that the test isn't providing a more useful, free of bias, free of difference measure that it was often claimed to be. Right? Yes, high schools will differ in their curriculum. Yes, students will differ in their preparation, even if they have equal GPA. But to presume that for four years, all teachers in a certain institution has lied about the level of preparation of that student is, seems a bit far-fetched. We did reach out to the college board, and they administer the standardized tests, including the SAT. And we asked their view of the test optional movement. Of course, it has an impact on what they do, and they sent us this statement. The college board's mission isn't to ensure all colleges require the SAT. It's to expand access to college for more students and help them succeed when they get there. We work closely with test-optional institutions. Their statement goes on to say, Grades and test scores serve as checks and balances in the admissions process. Together, they provide more insight into a student's potential to succeed than either measure alone. How is the movement affecting these large groups that administer standardized tests? I think it's definitely caused concern. It's their business model, right? I think that it is of greater concern to ACT than SAT since ACT is a less diversified business than SAT than College Board is. Um, but I think that it's absolutely of concern when your primary product is being attacked on a daily basis. So there is a certain level of defensiveness that seems to come out of College Board these days because of the test optional movement. Um, and I think that it's disappointing to see. I would have liked to see College Board take ownership and take a role in encouraging more responsible use of the test. And I think that would be a, an important role that they could play in this rather than defending their product. And you started the test prep company Bell Curves in 2003 and then sold it five years ago. You've tutored kids for standardized tests, but you seem very skeptical of these tests. Do you think that they should be phased out? Um, do I think they should be phased out? I think that their importance in admissions processes should be greatly minimized. I think they give a small amount of information and they occupy a great deal of space and time in educational spaces. So the, the value versus the importance is, is really out of whack, right? I think that if they were greatly minimized in their use, that would be a much better position. Akil, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Akil Bello is an educational consultant. He founded Bell Curves, a test prep company, but since has become skeptical about the value of standardized tests, Colorado College recently moved to a test-optional admissions policy. Sometimes the biggest challenge for people seeking out nature along the Front Range isn't finding a great place to explore, it's finding parking at the trailhead.
This picture could improve if an experiment in Jefferson County works out. CPR environment reporter Grace Hood explains. Denver resident Nick Brown avoids car travel. But for Colorado hiking, a car is as important as water and sunscreen. Standing in front of the Mount Galbraith parking lot west of Denver, he says he's not afraid to break the rules if he needs to. Have you ever parked illegally? Yeah. It's the necessary evil to get out there and enjoy the nature experience? Uh, yeah. He's not alone. This year, Jefferson County Rangers have written 231 tickets and counting for illegal parking. Ranger Mary Ann Bunnell with the county says those are just the people who got caught. When the parking lot fills, our visitors go into, I call it the reptilian brain mode, where they create a spot. And it may not be a safe spot, it may not be a spot that makes sense, but they do it. Visitors block fire lanes, other cars. They even park illegally behind no parking signs, like this one in Mount Galbraith. This is the sign I was standing next to when a visitor asked me, what does no parking mean? Were your wheels turning? (laughs) I just smiled and I said, thank you for asking. What no parking means is you can't park in front of this sign. And then I described why, that that it's about emergency access and that we need to be able to have an ambulance come in. Or we've actually even had a helicopter land in this lot. The growing problem prompted Bunnell to work with a small Colorado Springs startup named LotSpot to provide real-time parking data. Right now, co-founder Connor McCormick says cameras in seven Jefferson County open space lots feed data into a smartphone app. We're early stages, but we'd love feedback from people. We'd love people to start using it. To make this work, they face technological challenges. Most parking lots are out of cell phone range. Few have electricity. McCormick devised a solution. This is what... It looks like a pole with a camera on top of it. He points to the tricked-out pole near the lot's entrance. It uses solar panels. A battery stores power during the night. LotSpot typically operates in malls or on college campuses. So they had to teach computers to recognize the different types of visitors that you see at trailheads. At the moment, we can say this is either a car, it's a horse, it's a pedestrian... Um, We can't get down any more granular than that. Horses and people don't require parking spots, so the computers had to learn to ignore them. For users, the end result is a map in the app with pins. Red pins indicate full. Yellow show limited availability. Green means plenty of spots. Roger Wendell with the Colorado Mountain Club says if the app works in the long run, it could mean less parking lot rage. There are some spots he tries to avoid on weekends. I have recent experiences on uh, Grays and Tories as recently as last weekend, and friends and myself and others have had encounters with a lot of parking problems on Beardstadt. There are different solutions out there for parking. Boulder and Rocky Mountain National Park have instituted shuttles to popular destinations. Some federal and local land managers are considering paid permits for high-traffic trailheads. But Wendell thinks there is one bonus to the Jeffco parking solution. This app would provide an incentive to consider, you know, alternatives for the weekend. So there's plenty of upsides, but what about potential downsides? Marianne Bunnell with Jeffco Open Space says the program won't store license plate or other identifying information. But if you're someone who likes to use open space after hours, be careful. Bunnell says if cars are detected in the lot once the park is closed, 
rangers will get an alert. And we've had people shoot off fireworks, we've had people have bonfires, and so I will say that while we aren't monitoring identities or anything like that, we are monitoring for things like after-hours use. And long-term, it won't just be hikers who benefit from this information. Benell says her team can't wait to get year-round data that quantifies just how popular the trails are and when. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. And now, a singer who is one of the most adored performers of her era. I have been a rover since I was a child. No one to love or care for me. Pablo Picasso and Ernest Hemingway raved about her. Musicians from Diana Ross to Beyonce have cited her as an influence, and she was a champion of the American Civil Rights Movement who spoke at the March on Washington in 1963. Can you name her? It's Josephine Baker singing Breezin' Along with the Breeze. Born in St. Louis, Baker moved to France as a teenager where she lived most of her life until her death in 1975. She was perhaps the most famous singer and dancer of her time, but many Americans today are unfamiliar with her. That's why Denver singer and composer Erica Papillon-Posey wrote a new cabaret show, Reclaiming Josephine, which she stars as Baker. It debuts tomorrow night at the Vintage Theater in Aurora. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Avery. The title of this show is Reclaiming Josephine. Why does she need to be reclaimed? Uh, simply because you, what you kind of alluded to is that many Americans don't know who she is or has simply forgotten who she is or her um, uh, credits to the arts, specifically the 1920s jazz era um, that she almost single-handedly ushered in, um, along with the Harlem Renaissance that was going on, on at the time, and really was our first black international superstar. And no one knows, you know, long before, the, like you said, the days of Beyonce in your lead up or the, the Madonnas of the world, there was Josephine Baker. And you're clearly a big fan. How did Josephine Baker's music enter your life? Oh, my. She's always been in my life. I've always known about her um, as a, uh, an aspiring artist since I was about six years old. You know, I was always standing in the mirror with a brush or a boa or something, pretending I was this glamorous person um, and came along um, in, in books, you know, reading civil rights history and um, performers of the time. Uh, but more recently, I have a book called um, Black Vintage Glamour, and there's an incredible photo of her in that book, and it really just reignited um, my interest in her. And uh, I was able to dig deeper, specifically by starting with the uh, a read of uh, the autobiography on her life from one of her sons, Jean-Claude Baker. And it, to me, it's the definitive biography on her life. And I just became fascinated all over again. And having traveled internationally quite a bit in the past 10 years or so, um, there are a lot of um, parallels that I understand about her life as an artist, you know, and what she went through uh, as a, an African-American woman in the arts, um, the travails of, you know, discrimination, um, um, racial civil unrest going on um, at the time that has really had a resurgence in this day and age as well. And I really just wanted to um, pay homage to her memory. 
And you mentioned Josephine Baker's biography, and that is endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. She was a spy for the French Renaissance during World War II, one of the first black female movie stars, a champion of civil rights in the U.S. What were some of the discoveries about Baker that you made as you put this production together? Yes, uh, particularly. I mean, her being a spy to the French resistance is pretty much a widely known um, fact. But little things like I knew she was heavily involved in the civil rights um, uh, period, but I didn't know that Coretta Scott King literally sought her out to become the new face of the civil rights movement at the assassination of Martin Luther King. And the only reason that she said no was because a lot of her adopted children, she had 12, were still quite little. And um, she didn't want them to be without their mother. It was a priority for her to really, you know, she was going to become a mom, to, to be a mom. And that was the only thing that stopped her from uh, from actually doing it. So that was fascinating to me that there was that connection there. Or that Grace Kelly was one of her best friends, you know, um, and came to her aid when she lost her beloved chateau, 14th century chateau in the south of France. So um, fascinating. Like, an African-American woman from East St. Louis now living in a 14th century castle with 12 children from all over the world, you know, different backgrounds and ethnicities and religious backgrounds that she um, adhered to. So she loved animals. Um, She had a pet pig that roamed freely in one of the night, her nightclubs, Chez Josephine. Oh, my word. Um, She had a, um, um, uh, uh, a cheetah named Chiquita, um, that she took strolls with down the Champs Elysees, um, and the the cheetah wore a diamond crusted collar. You know things like that. That is wild. Yes, yes. So th- that's incredible. That's Josephine Baker singing Voila Paris. That song appears in Erica Papillon Posey's new show about Baker reclaiming Josephine. Some of the music in this show was hard to track down. There aren't recordings or even sheet music of some of the songs. What was that process like? Oh, wow. Thank God I'm studied in music, yes. Have a background in music. Um, undergrad from Metro, graduate degree from the Lamont School of Music, DU. Uh, along with Peter Stoltzman, who is my um, head music director for the show, we literally had to piece everything together using video clips like you were playing there for Voila Paris. Um, I had to transcribe all of the French. Again, thank God for my classical background in, in languages. Um, and then the uh, actual orchestration or the music, we literally had to transcribe as well. Um, and or transpose, depending on the key that we wanted it to be in. Um, and that was quite daunting. I had never done any of that before in that sense. I definitely write and compose. Um, but this was next level. And yes, I will be singing half in French and half in English and some Spanish in a, a little bit, but primarily um, French. Uh, I'm from Louisiana, so I grew up with French. Um, I have a, an ear for it uh, um, automatically. But with French, unlike English or Italian, five vowels, basically A-E-I-O-U, um, in French, it's basically 16 versions wow. uh, of those vowels. So it could, there, there are options. There are too many options. Um, but I love the challenge. And um, for her to be able to do it with no formal training in French... 
um, or formal training in dance um, or acting for that matter. I was like, hey, she she didn't have any of the resources at um, her disposal that I do. So what was I complaining about? You'll be backed by a few musicians and a dancer, but Reclaiming Josephine is mostly a one-woman show. Why did you write it that way? Uh, that was Josephine. That was Josephine. If she was on the stage, she was on the stage. She was your focus. Yes, of course, I can't do what I do, nor could she, without the incredible musicians that support us um, from the stage. But um, your eye always uh, focused on her. You were drawn to her. Um, it was just that way. She was a force of nature. Um, her son, Jean-Claude, said that she was a wonderful woman, but if you got too close to her, it was almost like getting too close to the sun. She could burn you. She was that electric, mm. that on fire. And um, it definitely came across on, on stage, you know. She was dancing and clowning around, as she called it, uh, in a period where you had ballet, where everything was very upright and, <clears throat> you know, the, the plies and um, um, very statuesque. And she literally just deconstructed everything and put it in your face and said, here, take it or leave it. And of course, the French, loving everything that was nouveau riche, um, they loved it. They ate her up. And we mentioned earlier that one of your motivations for writing this show is to keep Baker's legacy alive. There was an Emmy-winning HBO film about her released in 1991, but not much else. If people who see Reclaiming Josephine remember her for one thing, what do you hope that is? Oh, God, commitment. Commitment, definitely. She did not uh, ever let her background, language, um, 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 unfamiliar settings um, deter her from going after what she wanted. If she saw something she wanted, she just did it, period. She'd do it and then ask questions later. So commitment. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Erica Papillon-Posey is the writer and star of the new cabaret show Reclaiming Josephine. It debuts tomorrow at Aurora's Vintage Theater and runs through October 17th. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lil. This is CPR News.